0: Welcome to The Lit Review, a podcast sparked by a moment of urgency, recognizing mass political education as key for our liberation struggles. Every week, your hosts, Paige May and Monica Trinidad, will chat with people we love and respect about relevant books for the movement. Everything from history to theories around gender to sci-fi and beyond. We know that political study is not accessible for a variety of reasons. The high cost of books, academic jargon, the failures of our underfunded school systems, time barriers, etc. Our hope is that this podcast helps address some of those issues, making critical knowledge more accessible to the masses. Think SparkNotes in podcast form. I'm one of your hosts, Paige May. Thanks for listening. All right. Hey, Paige. How's it going?
1: Good. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. So today we're here with Eve Ewing. I'm really excited that you're here. I feel like I actually—I don't know if I've actually really met you. No, this is our first in-person IRL. Yeah,
2: I hope you're not horribly disappointed. No, (laughs) you have vibrant
1: purple hair. Yay! Thanks. (laughs) Um, And so today we're going to be talking about Colson Whitehead's um, *The Underground Railroad*. Um, I have not read it, but I have heard podcasts with um, with Colson talking about the book and reading in his very soothing, beautiful voice. Um, So, will
2: will I be spoiling the book for you? No. Okay. okay. That's okay. Okay. Paige <laughs> has told me
1: lots about it already. <laughs> also, funny story. The way that I found out about this book, I was telling Paige earlier, is that I um, was invited to speak at New Trier High School hmm. uh, in February mm-hmm. of this year. And it was for their uh, Civil Rights All sem- All Seminar Day. And he was one of the keynote speakers. Oh, and And I was just, like, talking about We tried Genocide, actually. I was talking about the trip to Geneva. And there was, like, national coverage of the backlash that this – that the seminar was getting oh, wow. from the parents of Trier. I mean because Trier, it's like yeah, it's, well, it's, it's what it it's is. up there it yeah. is what it is we'll just leave it at that yeah and um <laughs> huge backlash like par- like there was articles in Breitbart there was about us naming me naming Colson as speakers linking to our like our websites oh, and gosh. our emails and um basically saying that like we were like indoctrinating the kids um because this was um this this was too biased
2: <laughs> that's so fascinating. It's, so, it's so fascinating because the book I think is quite uncommon controversial right but it's just it's yeah that's what Paige was saying was like are you kidding me I'm confident (laughs) yeah I'm confident that they did not read the book right yeah so it was really so
1: that's when I was like oh I want to read this book (laughs) Hmm. um but yeah so I'm very excited to hear more about it um so why don't you just tell us a little bit about yourself who are you what do you do and why
2: oh who am I oh there's so many questions okay (laughs) um Uh, well, um, I am a Chicagoan and actually this question used to be really hard for me because I, I do a lot of different projects and I used to like name 12 things. But recently my niece who was four asked me what my job is and that forced me to like <laughs> distill it so that I can say I'm, I more or less have two jobs. So one job is that I'm a sociologist um, of education so I study racism and inequality in public schools. Um, and the other job is that I'm a writer, and I think what I'm going to start doing is just letting being a writer encompass, like, I think part of, part of my practice of being a writer is not just about writing, but being, like, an active literary and political citizen, and so I also do a lot of cultural organizing um, and fun stuff that, that is encompassed in my writing practice, um, but I write poems, I write essays. Um, I have a book coming out in September, um, and I just finished another book that's not coming out for a long time. Uh, Yeah, that's what I do. And what led you to read this book? So I have a profession where I have to read, and most of the time, what I have to read is not fiction. Um, you know, a lot of poets, like, it's important to read poetry as a poet, so that's one thing. Um, but I also read a lot of scholarly articles and nonfiction books and sociology books. And it's been really important to me, starting from when I was in graduate school, to maintain a practice of reading fiction fiction is my most like favorite form of writing it's the type of writing that i most wish that i could do and that i feel most incapable of doing and so i'm always trying to read a novel at all times um and uh this one in particular was getting so much press and so much attention and um it really intrigued me colson whitehead's previous novels I had also heard great things about and wanted to read, and never got my act together to do it. Um, but I heard an interview with him, the tail end of an interview with him on the radio, and I was like, "Okay, this is the one. Like, this is like some speculative fiction, and is winning all these awards. Like, I got to step it up and make it happen." Um, and a lot of people that I love and respect were reading it too. So, so there, there it happened. There it goes.
0: I heard a word that I love, but can you say what you mean by speculative fiction?
2: Yes. Um, Speculative fiction um, is a term for fiction that imagines um, other aspects of the world than occur in reality or reality as we know it. So it's sort of a term that encompasses things like what we might more commonly call science fiction or fantasy. But... um, Like, this book, for example, for reasons that we'll probably talk about, you might not say, strictly speaking, that it's sci-fi or fantasy, right? Like, for example, it doesn't involve any kind of magic, per se, or it doesn't involve, like, technology that didn't actually exist in the 19th century. But it imagines the world other than as it actually is. Um, And I think that speculative fiction um, is really political for people of color because... um, I think that it uh, um, it is a form of imagining other realities and to me there's something really powerful about, especially books like this that they're not necessarily set in the future. Um, it's not just imagining like a different future, like things could be better, or things could be different. It's actually really bold to reimagine the past or the present as if they were otherwise and then think about what that makes possible. So um, it's like something I really enjoy reading. Mm-hmm. I was actually just talking to
1: Paige a little bit before this too, while we're reading for you is I, the way that I, I don't read fiction often. That's oh like, no, I know, I'm I so know, sad for I you. know, I it's, it's, it's a problem I'm going to fix in my life. Um, but I was talking about how fiction is one of those things that I, think is so important for organizers to read um, because just as art and movements uh, is important for like illuminating both like what we're fighting for but also like giving more life to our histories in various more accessible different ways so is fiction right fiction like you were just saying it's a form of imagining other realities Um, and I think that it's really important for for organizers to read so I'm like no to self like read more fiction I'm going to do it and this podcast is going to make me do it.
2: Yeah, I'm really glad to hear you say that, and I completely agree. And there's, um, if you want like a piece of short fiction to bring into your organizing world, that's not, you know, the commitment of reading a whole novel. There's a short story by Derek Bell called "The Space Traders," um, and Derek Bell was actually a really, really famous black law professor at Harvard. He passed away a few years ago. Um, and "The Space Traders" is this story that aliens come from outer space. And they say, like, we will give you all these wonderful things and help humans in all these ways and solve your problems if you give us all of your black people. And it is unclear, like, what they're going to do with the black people or like. So it introduces this question of, you know, what is the it's on its surface or ethical question. Right. And like um, also a question, a philosophical question of like, what is humanity willing to sacrifice, wow. and who is humanity willing to sacrifice for the purpose of material gain, mm-hmm. of uncertain material gain, and obviously it's just, it's just, it's about white supremacy, right? Where it's yeah. like, dang, white people really would give us up like so fast, you yeah. know, to get to get something. Um, and it's fascinating to me because Derek Bell, like I said, was a legal scholar, and he wrote this like fiction story. So I'm also really intrigued by. Um, like what it means as a scholar to use not just theory or case studies or those kinds of things, but also use imagination to figure things out about Mm -hmm. the world. Mm -hmm. So yes, everybody should. I always say, yeah, I always say I wish all the sociologists would read poetry and all the poets would read sociology, but everybody should be reading fiction (laughs) all the time. Yes, I agree. I, I am a new, I'm a new agreeer. A You're new a convert. Follower. I am a convert. There yeah.
1: Um, so tell us about the book a little bit. Walk us through um, how Colson Whitehead um, lays this story out.
2: Um, so the book follows an enslaved woman named Cora. Um, and I believe she begins in Georgia. She, ble- she begins the book in Georgia. Um, and she decides that um, she is going to run away with another young man on her plantation whose name is Caesar. Um, and, uh, something that's interesting about her before she makes a decision to run away is that even within the life of the plantation, she's sort of like a marked woman. So she lives, um, in this sort of like outcast, um, cabin with all these other women that for various reasons are considered like the weirdos or the dangerous people or the witches or, you know, insert your term for different women, um, and they and she's considered like very dangerous, very deviant. Um, and she witnesses a really horrific act of violence, and then is whipped for it, and makes a decision the d- decision that she's going to run. And with this other person that she doesn't really know very well, but who came to her and said, "Do you want to run with me?" And she also um, doesn't have a mother because her mother ran away and left her when she was very young. And so that simultaneously gives her this. Um, bitterness or questioning towards her mother of like, why did you abandon me? But it also gives her a sense that her mother might be living somewhere free in the world. And obviously a very intense longing for her. And it also is part of this idea of her being marked because um, she lives on a plantation with especially very cruel um, slave owners. And uh, they no one has ever been able to find her mother and they've employed like all the worst slave catchers in the country and no one has ever been able to find her. So there's also this idea that she maybe has some sort of power um, that comes from the fact that her mother, her, her most immediate ancestor, has already escaped. And so the structure of the book is that um, the, each section takes us to another state and in these different states across the United States, um, everybody is kind of... Um, processing or experience or enacting slavery in different ways. And so she sees all these different forms that the same horrible institution takes in different places. Um, and <clears throat> I don't know if I should say how it ends. Is it understood that people listening to the podcast have you read the book? Okay. Um it, yeah. Okay. Um, so at the end of the book, she finds herself in this um, settlement of escaped, other people that have escaped slavery and free people. And... Um, they are in a very tragic, shocking scene um, attacked by nearby white people that basically feel like they're a danger or a threat. Um,
0: it's in Indiana, right? It's in
2: Indiana, yeah, which is, like, obviously deep for a lot of reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, and then she manages to escape from that. And so the, very, the book ends with her being free, um, ostensibly. I mean, we don't know what comes next for her, but it's weird. It's a, it's one of those books where it's like it really makes you question the paradigm of what it means to have a happy ending or not. Um, and the scene in which they are attacked is like truly, truly devastating and really for me was really memorable.
0: Uh, so th- the book, it is fiction. Right. And I think um, that that's important for a lot of reasons. And can you name to the best? Since you know of the Underground Railroad, what uh, what of the book is fiction and why do you think he did that?
2: Oh, so I left out the most interesting (laughs) or like the most obvious conceit of the book, which is that... um, in this book, the Underground Railroad is literalized as a legit railroad um, that has a train <laughs> in a tunnel and stuff. Which so,
0: is what I actually thought when
2: I was a right, little girl, right, people, yeah, which people, people, many people, many have people said that. still do.
0: They still think it's literally a ra- it's a railroad. Yeah, many people yeah. have
2: said that yep. um, that it was a literal railroad. Which you know you can read a lot into that about what our educational system is teaching people mm-hmm. about slavery um, and resistance therein, but. Um, So, I think that that serves a number of purposes. One is that it's just really intriguing. And I'm not going to lie, like, that was a huge reason why I was like, oh, I have to read this. Like, it gives you the sense of something that is new or different about this narrative that is fascinating and and draws you in in a different way. And I think that, you know, a lot of people could say that that's gimmicky or whatever, but I think that if it causes more people to read the book, that's not a bad thing. And it's very artfully done. And also, um, comparatively, very short, very, very little of the book is spent, like, on this little train or whatever. Like, it's not like, it's our adventure on a... Right? Like, that's not what the book is um, at all. So I think it also is, um, to me, it, it calls to the foreground... There's, like, two other purposes served. So one is that it's just intriguing. It also, to me, calls to the foreground the vast amounts of labor that were involved in escaping from slavery and the vast amounts of labor that were involved in maintaining slavery and the degree to which slavery was so embedded in every aspect of American culture, society, and the economy... So I think part of what the metaphor of a railroad does is it forces you to think about, like, a railroad needs, like, metal and railroad ties and uh, steel and people to dig the tunnel, right? And so having it as that literalized metaphor forces you to think about all the risks that people took and the extreme difficulty that are required to escape from slavery. Um, And I also just think there's something strangely beautiful about it. Um, I also really love trains and I am very, you know, I'm very interested in like the role of trains in the great migration, for example, and how like we all like as black people, we got to Chicago by train, you know, like that's, that's kind of our origin story. Um, and people talk about, a lot about boats and the significance of boats in and, and the Middle Passage, but it's like, then later we got here on the train. Um, and like my mother literally got to Chicago on the train. You know, my grandmother left Mississippi on a train. That's how we have moved around. So I think that there's also something to that that's really special.
0: And he does this thing, from what I understand, as she's moving, each new chapter is a different state. and. And as I was reading, I was like, "Wow, I didn't know that about South Carolina." And I had to remind myself, like, "This is fiction, right?" right. But right. he's doing my understanding. He's doing something where he's trying to uh, represent different sort of states or, or um, political projects that white people were doing, that America was setting sure. up under the institution of slavery that we had. And, he, and it's moving through different states. But these were things that were happening all around the country. right? And in this st- case, so he's showing you, so this thing was going on. I'm going to name it South Carolina. And this thing was going on. And I'm wondering, what do you think he's teaching us about what slavery was um, and what folks were actually having
2: to resist? I had to adjust my hair because Monica's out here making videos. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I think that that is one of the huge interventions of the book is that, um, t- like, the escape from the plantation, the plantation is really, really, really horrific, and then the pl- the escape from the plantation happens relatively early, right? And yet, this person who has, air quotes, escaped slavery can never actually escape slavery, and so what that looks like is, for example, in South Carolina, um, she starts going, she's living in this, like again, like a free or semi-free like bonded settlement of other people. And they have all these white doctors that keep telling them to go to the doctor and keep telling all these women to go to the doctor. And of course, she finds out that they are sterilizing women against their will, Um, which introduces a conversation about black women and reproductive justice and uh, the history of that in slavery and very much in the present, right? That, as you said, is fictionalized but I hope introduces people to a conversation about something that is very, very, very real um, and does so in a way that really pushes against um, something something I struggle with a lot is that I think it's very important that we teach young children about atrocities at a relatively early age like I think that is important I also think that when we do that it often ends up really flattening the story of those atrocities and that instead what we need to have is like a constant cyclical reteaching and reteaching and reteaching so that you should not have a slavery unit right like you should be learning about the different aspects of this institution that built our society in layered ways as you grow um And so I think that a lot of people don't have that experience and they don't know that, you know, rape and sexual violence and sexual control and bodily control of women was so much a fundament of this institution. And controlling, I think also controlling when and how black women's reproductive systems work is obviously, for me, one of the afterlives of slavery that is most obvious and visible in contemporary life. So I think that introducing that in this sort of you know, I won't call it simple, straightforward way in this book, um, opens up a much broader conversation.
1: Mm -hmm. And how, so that really touches on how we can use fiction to to help us understand history, right? So how, in just a lot, because this podcast is more directed towards, like, organizers and activists that are just trying to, like, you know, I mean, when we started this podcast, we were like, there are so many books we really need to be reading right now, and we nobody just, got time. Nobody got time for that. Yeah. So, like, what? How can how can using fiction help us understand? Um, how to achieve freedom and liberation in, in general like overall right yeah in relation to this to this book in particular
2: well just as a shout out to this book i do think that this is a book where you could very much like choose a chapter or a passage and make it like make copies of it and use it for a discussion group or something like that like if you are an organizer who's listening to this and is looking for something to you know use as a tool of discussion or whatever i think that this book really lends itself to that I think more broadly, you know, I, I use Twitter a lot. Um, I'm on Twitter a lot. And um, a while back I asked this question where I asked people, I asked white people who consider themselves like somewhat knowledgeable about racism, which obviously, I don't know these people, I was letting them do that self-assessment, but um, white people that consider themselves somewhat aware of race and racism in America, what was the book that changed it for you? And I, or that like gave you this awareness. And I asked this question because um, people frequently ask me, hey, I'm teaching this class of all white, whatever, students, adults, can you make some recommendations for me? And I have never, I, I know a lot about racism from books. I never had my initial understanding of racism from a book, right? I had my first learning about un- about racism happened in my life as a very young child through trauma, um, right? Like, I was called the N-word by a neighbor, right? Uh, and, like, people put clan march flyers like on the windshields of cars in my neighborhood and stuff like that. So that's how I learned about racism, right? And so I don't know what it's like to be a college student or a very earnest middle school student at Nutria or whatever and have to learn these things. So I so I asked the Twitterverse and so many people came back and said that their first understanding of race and racism and oppression and inequality in America came from fiction. Um, Or even from like literary nonfiction, like the autobiography of Malcolm X, the the Alex Haley version contains a great deal of fiction in it. Um, It is like a, you know, um, a narrativized account. So I think that I think that the reason that is, is because fiction allows us to have empathy for people in a way that is really different from just learning facts or histories. I think fiction allows us to imagine other worlds and other ways of being um, in ways that exceed the imagination that is afforded to us by lived reality. Um, And I think it's like accessible and enjoyable to read. And if anything, I think that there are a lot of lessons that we can learn in other aspects of life when you're trying to make social change about how to include storytelling in narrative, which is absolutely a component of good organizing, right? Is you have people come out and share testimony and things like that. And the reason that works is because people love stories and storytelling is the most natural and one of the oldest forms of human interaction is like a million years ago, people stood around a fire and they're like, let me tell you this crazy thing that happened to me. I got chased, not by a dinosaur, because humans and dinosaurs never interacted, but yeah. uh, I'll let that metaphor die. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I I think that fiction just does work in a way that other forms of writing don't necessarily.
0: What did you learn from the book?
2: Ooh, what did I learn from the book? I think that so there's like knowledge learning and there's like emotional learning, right? So when you, so like what I mean by that is sometimes you know something in facts, but you don't know, know it until it really hits you in a certain way. And I think that I didn't learn anything in the book about like different facts or something like that. But the, the main character was so compelling to me and I cared for her so deeply and I felt so invested in her life. Um, I had that really, really good feeling you have when you finish a book where you miss the people. Like you close the book and you're like, that, I miss you. Like I'm not going to be around you anymore. And so I realized that as much as I read about and talk about these things in history, that there still has to be space in my heart for feeling. Like feeling sad, like crying, hurting, um, and not overly intellectualizing everything and thinking always about how these were people, people related to us, people like us, which is also very, very painful. And I said this before we started recording, but I also have like my great, great grandmother's name was Cora and her mother was born a slave and died free. Um, And so that part really just hit me. So I think I just learned about how important it is to continue to open my heart and not just open my mind to these conversations. And it also made me just want to um, keep, reading a lot of, keep reading a lot of things. Mm-hmm. So I think I learned something about myself. Yeah. <laughs> That's so beautiful. I really want to read this book now. You should. It's long. Oh it's super long, but it, it's a pretty quick read.
1: It's not like Black Reconstruction long, so I can probably no. do that.
2: <laughs> Are you all going to do Homegoing? Has anyone recommended Homegoing? Uh, you just said that. Okay, yeah, so I'm obsessed with, I read I think these two go to, yeah, yeah. I was
0: like,
2: oh my gosh, this is. Yeah, they are companion texts in many ways.
0: And then so,
2: hi. I, as a teacher, I was like, "Oh, I
0: feel like you could do incredible lessons yeah. with those two oh, books yeah. together." And so yeah. I saw you tweeting about it. I was like, "I all I want to do is right now is talk to Eve about this." Oh yeah, and, and homegoing, yeah, because they they tell the history in very specific ways, but in ways that for me, like as you were, speaking, complicated. They complicate. There's not really like a hero. Like she doesn't even really. She chooses to leave and run, but it's not for this big, noble... Right. right, ...like, they're going to make a movie out of Nat Turner Rebellion right? kind of moment. Right. And a lot of people die. Like, everyone who helps her, I think everyone, dies or goes through a horrible thing, and they never know if she makes it. They never know if it was, quote-unquote, worth it. And she's one person out of a system that treats people like...
2: millions of people. And the person who initially leads her to escape, not only does he die, but he, like, gets, like, an off-camera death. Yes. Right? Like, he gets a... Totally, like, a horrible, brutalized death that we don't even learn about mm-hmm. until way after it happened yeah. and that she doesn't learn about till way after it happened, mm-hmm. and, like, that's life, right? right? Like, that is how... Yeah, you're so right. And I bring up Homegoing because I think that they are... that they have a lot of parallels and that. I don't know if you all will do another episode about that, but I think also just shout out to anyone who's listening. I really recommend the text together. I did the opposite of you. I read this, uh, and then I read Homegoing.
0: I think that's how Whew. I would teach it, but I don't know. I'd have to think.
2: Yeah, I mean... The first thing I thought when I finished this book was like, oh, I wish I was still teaching eighth grade. Like, I would teach mm-hmm. the mess out of this book, you know? Even though it's it's really difficult. It's a really difficult book. Not in terms of reading level, but in terms of material. Mm-hmm. Did you
1: have like a, a, was there like a really incredible chapter that you can remember, or like? Hmm. Yeah, like Yeah. The favorite part of the book.
2: Well, yeah, I have the, I there are so many favorite parts. This was like a heavily underlined book for me. Um, when you you all ask me to think about like what is your favorite part passage and my favorite passage is in my favorite part which is like um, when they get to Indiana and they're living in this free settlement um, there is a conflict within the settlement between different factions that. Very, very, very roughly map on to like maybe like a Du Bois, Booker T. Washington kind of thing. But um, we don't have to do that. We can just say there's just different political factions within um, the settlement, which is basically um, the dude that um, freed his family the quote unquote right respectable way, which is that like he, you know, rented himself out for labor and raised all this money and purchased his whole family's freedom versus all these folks that escaped. Um, And he wants them all driven off of the land. Like, they're attracting too much attention. They're fugitives. They're dangerous. And then there is this, like, heroic... um orator character who is who gives these beautiful speeches where he's like no we all have to be together which is also super problematic because he's like light-skinned and was never he was born free like never actually experienced slavery which i just thought was an amazing character for colson whitehead to write like this um this black and there's so many people like this in history right like black people that become these exalted leaders that themselves are not necessarily experiencing the oppression that they're speaking out against in this really beautiful way, but they feel empathic and they like get elevated because of various degrees of privilege that they have. And um, but there's this part where everybody gets together in the barn and they're gonna have these um, spe- They're gonna have these like this debate about what they should do and if they should kick all the escaped people off the farm. And um, the the one of the characters gives a speech that I thought was really beautiful. And as a moment of fiction, it's also like It's this part of the book where like everything seems to be going great. Like she, Cora has like a boo and like a little family that she's built of like other people and they're all free. Everything's great and they're like working land. And so you have this extreme tension of like this cannot be, this cannot last forever. Like this cannot be good. And it doesn't, it ends in this horrible way. Um, So just in terms of like narrative structure, it's a beautiful moment. And then, or it's a really well crafted moment. And then in terms of like these speeches, it's very beautiful.
0: Um, I mean I, there's so many things that there's like whole parts that I would love to hear your thoughts on but I, I think you know you've been speaking about how the, the initial question I had was you know would you teach this to young people and, mm-hmm. and I think you've said yes right um, and I guess I'm wondering would you teach it to young white people, and how might that be different than how you teach it to young black people or people hmm. of color? Um, but like, what, do, yeah, because I there were parts about it that I thought were really interesting. Because my favorite quote, not favorite is the wrong word. Most interesting part was the white folks who take her in because they don't want to be seen, don't want her on their front porch because <laughs> they know other people are looking yeah. and they don't want a black person on their front yeah. porch, and. That she couldn't have made it without them, and they die um, yeah, they die horrible horrible yeah. horrible i mean it really sucks exactly but yeah. so it, um yeah, I'm wondering if you can kind of speak to to that what it says about agency um
2: yeah, that's a really good point, so I would teach this to everybody, I think it's just a great book for so many different audiences um I think for young white people there is a there are a couple of lessons, one is the lesson of like um people that were living in slavery were human people and they were not pictures in a textbook they were not numbers on a table they were human people um, that had love and fear and hope and desire and as something that this book illustrates like had in them um the deep deep, deep abiding belief that they deserve to be free and to live as human people. Even if, like, can you imagine being born into slavery and the only reality that you know is that you are an object of property and yet and still there is something in your soul that tells you that that is not true and that that, that you are not that and that you should fight to not be that. Um, there's this po- there's this essay I really love by Audre Lorde called Poetry is Not a Luxury and there's one part where she says... Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah, that's D- my first tattoo. What it was, does it say?
0: It, it doesn't say that. It just oh. means that essay and oh.
2: how I understood it. Oh, yeah. snap. <laughs> I was going to get a tattoo yesterday that said poetry is not a luxury. Uh, and then the tattoo shop I co- that I go to, I call them and they're like, we're really full. And then afterwards, my friend Jose. Tattoo is not a luxury. I know, right? <laughs> and then my friend Jose posted a picture of himself at the same shop. And he got a tattoo yesterday. And I was like, he stole <laughs> my shot How dare he? Anyway. Um, Teddy, but she says, like, I'm paraphrasing, but Audre Lorde says, like, You know, we learn from Western society, I think, therefore I am. And the black woman poet inside all of us says, I feel, therefore I can be free, right? And so I think that there's something so beautiful about that, that against all logic of reality that you see every single day from birth to death, literally every person that you know inhabits this reality, that yet and still you're like, no, right, this is not right. And so I think that so much about the way people are taught, people have... All over the place of all races are taught about slavery is so dehumanizing um, and replicates some of the violence of slavery itself by not focusing on things like love and hurt. And so I think that a lot of white audiences in particular could really benefit from this character who is just so deeply human and that you just want her to win not because of some great moral good but because you care for her and she's a great protagonist. Um, that's one thing and I th- the other big lesson I think that white people could really take from this is this question of agency and what it means to be an agent against a system of oppression that you think is wrong and that the different there are different characters there are different white characters in the book who participate in the Underground Railroad for different reasons. Some of their motivations are very, very deep and altruistic, and some of them really aren't, right? And some of them are, like, not so great. And, there are, and some of the ones that are really great and have great motivations, they die, right? And so it also makes us think about um, how difficult freedom really, really is and the role that all of us have to play and the sacrifices that are made to achieve it. Um, and it also, like... It's not based on this really over-heroic, um, simplified, flattened person of, like, a savior white person that was so good-hearted that, you know, they were taking in slaves every day and, like, making them eggs and bacon, right? It's like, no, people were very afraid and in sometimes maybe did not act really nobly because they were afraid and they could die if they were caught. So um, I think that there's a lot to take away there.
1: If you could tell colson whitehead anything about this book
2: what would you tell him oh boy was that the super Was that the surprise no, no. question oh, okay i would tell him this is so terrible of me because it's going to sound like i'm just giving out cookies but i would tell him i appreciate i'm going to change it so i'm not saying like thank you because that's a little too cookie. but like i truly appreciate the black woman character that you made for this book. And I truly appreciate the way you centered her as a as a very full, robust human being. Um, and it could have been a man, like, could have been a dude. It could have been a Nat Turner hero, like, you know, self-sacrifice, grandiose jester type, type dude. And instead, he chose this woman, and he chose this woman who um, he complicates her with this history of as I said, already being kind of within her own people and with other black people being kind of ostracized and sidelined. Um, and I think that she's just a really beautiful soul, beautiful character, and I really appreciate that.
1: Well, thank you so much. We're at that time, I believe. Yeah, Yay. We're, we're at time. So, um, And we can probably talk about this all day. This um, is wonderful. Thank you. Yeah, and this has been really amazing. Thank you so much. Again, our guest is Eve Ewing, and the book we just talked about is The Underground Railroad by Colson Whitehead. Um, and Eve, as you may know, we close each episode with our guest's favorite quote from the book.
2: Um, so can you read it for us? Yeah. All right, I'm going to read a passage that um, I'm omitting I'm going to read like of a couple different things that I'm going to sew together so you can imagine a nice little ellipsis in the middle um, and this is the <clears throat> this is the character that I spoke about who's kind of this like uniting political figure on the farm here's one delusion that we can escape slavery we can't its scars will never fade When you saw your mother sold off, your father beaten, your sister abused by some boss or master, did you ever think you would sit here today without chains, without the yoke, among a new family? Everything you ever knew told you that freedom was a trick. Yet here you are. Still we run, tracking by the good full moon to sanctuary. Valentine Farm is a delusion. Who told you the Negro deserved a place of refuge? Who told you that you had that right? Every minute of your life's suffering has argued otherwise. By every fact of history, it can't exist. This place must be a delusion, too. Yet here we are. And America, too, is a delusion, the grandest one of all. The white race believes, believes with all its heart, that it is their right to take the land, to kill Indians, make war, enslave their brothers. This nation shouldn't exist if there is any justice in the world, for its foundations are murder, theft, and cruelty. Yet here we are. Color must suffice. It has brought us to this night, this discussion, and it will take us into the future. All I truly know is, we rise and fall as one. One colored family living next door to one white family. We may not know our way through the forest, but we can pick each other up when we fall, and we will arrive together.
0: Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Lit Review, a podcast where we interview people we love and respect about books for the movement.
1: We are your co-hosts, Monica Trinidad and Paige May, two Chicago-based organizers.
0: Special shout-out to The Lit Review's very own sponsor, the Arcus Center for Social Justice Leadership out of Kalamazoo College.
1: Keep your eyes and ears open for another episode next Monday, same time, same place.
0: Want to hear about a specific book? Email us at thelitreviewchicago at gmail.com or find us on Facebook.
1: And if you like this episode, give it a shout out on Twitter or Instagram. Our handle is at Lit Review Shy. Keep reading.